We're in Genesis chapter 30, looking at verses 25 to 43. Has anyone read ahead? Okay, good. This is one of those passages that some people look at and say, see, the Bible is just a collection of ridiculous fantasies and fairy tales. It's, you know, it's really outlived its usefulness. Does it, does it have any relevance in our modern civil, civilization, in our scientific age? Childhood friend of mine recently, in fact, just last month, posted on social media about this passage. And he said, this passage is just adorable. It's adorable how the Bible tries to explain the, the creation of zebras. This is just so cute. It's so silly. It's the kind of thing that a mischievous uncle might tell his sister's kids just for a laugh. Like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy might be fun to believe in for a while. No grown-up adult in their right mind would buy into this. Well, if, if that's the case, is that, if that is what this passage is really about, it's about how zebras or, or any striped quadruped came to be, well, then I would agree. I, I would absolutely agree. Furthermore, I wouldn't think it wrong to call into question anything else the Bible has to say. How can we trust it? How, what are we going to pick and choose what we believe as, as, as fact and truth here? And then over here say, well, you know, that's just, you know, it's an ancient document. And there's kind of silliness. And it, it, let's just put that to the side. But that's not the reason this particular passage is in the Bible. This is not a cute passage about how certain animals got their stripes. Nor is this here to tell us that what Jacob did really had anything to do with getting the results that he wanted. What this passage does tell us is that in spite of our ignorance, in spite of our foolishness, in spite of our best devices, God works his purposes. God works his will, and I am so thankful for this. God works his will in spite of me. In spite of my foolishness, in spite of my ill-informed logic, in spite of my gullible acceptance of human wisdom, my ignorance, my selfishness, my lame attempts to make things happen on my own, my lack of understanding, my, my belief in ridiculous, unfounded, superstitious, and even old wives' tales, in spite of my failure to measure up to who God intends for me to be, in spite of the moments when I completely disregard God's commands, he works his will in spite of me. And that is good news. Let me show you what I mean. Jacob knew that Haran would not be his home forever. God had promised him in the dream way back at Bethel that he would bring him back to the land from which he came. 
Remember the incredible promise that God gave him. Hopefully we'll be able to put it up on screens here. Despite Jacob's underhanded way of getting what he thought was coming to him, God says this. This is Genesis 28, verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. You shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your offspring, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And last week we saw how God kept that promise in spite of the crazy family mess and those ridiculous birth wars that were going on between Jacob's wives. After the 11th son was born, 12 children in total, Jacob could see that God was clearly keeping his word. Maybe his descendants weren't as the dust of the ground quite yet, but it was a good start. Now he believed the time was right to go back, to leave Haran and to move back home. The only problem was he didn't have any means to take care of all these people. There were a lot of mouths to feed, but no flocks of his own to feed them. And so he has a conversation with his favorite father-in-law. The conniving, the manipulating, the only out for himself Uncle Laban. And he says this, Genesis 30, verse 25, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. Jacob had done his time. 14 years of service for Leah and for Rachel. That was completed. And now he asks for his leave. And Laban responds in a, from what I see in the text, a, a rather flattering, kind of disingenuous way. As always, Laban saw an opportunity on the horizon, and he says this, If I have found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Now you Name your wages, and I will give it. You see there, he says, I've learned by divination. What's this about? I mean, who knows what this guy was into? Based on his sly behavior and his disregard for what is honorable, I wouldn't be surprised if he dabbled in some sort of dark practice to try and discern the future or to find some way to get an edge on everyone else and get ahead in life. And if that was the case, what a strange mixture here, mixture of belief in the one true God and superstition. There seems to be a blending of, of what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And as we read on, we're going to see that he's not the only one that doesn't seem to have it all together. And I wonder if we took our lives and poured them into the Petri dish and put them under the microscope. I wonder what kind of cocktail of beliefs 
we would find? Could it be that while we have genuine faith in Christ, at the same time, we're also holding on to all kinds of ridiculous fantasies? Maybe some ideas that are actually in direct opposition to God. Could it be that we we claim to trust God, to wholly lean on Jesus' name, and at the same time, we're trusting in chemical compositions or natural remedies or political leaders or economic trends or psychological studies or bank statements or any number of other things that offer insight or solutions to life's uncertainties. Whatever means he actually employed here, Laban could clearly see that having Jacob in his household for the past 14 years, well, that was bringing good to him. That was bringing prosperity. He had prospered greatly, not because of anything he had done, but because God was keeping his promise to Jacob. Now these two, Jacob and Laban, they were a bit like oil and water. With such painful deception in their past, I imagine they weren't the best of friends. I imagine they probably seldom agreed on anything in life. But in this case, when Jacob hears that God has blessed Laban because of him, he has to agree. The Lord had prospered Laban ever since Jacob had arrived. And not only does he agree, but Jacob actually drills down into the reality that Laban was not much of, a, not much of anything before he arrived. Look at verse 29. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? I'm sure that as much of, as Jacob probably would have loved to take all the credit on himself yeah, I, I've really, uh, really done you some big favors, buddy. He doesn't do that. He points to the one he knew was the ultimate source of blessing. It was God. It wasn't Jacob who blessed. It was God who blessed. It was God who was just coming through on the promise that he had already given Jacob. And so we see that despite Laban's conniving ways and the turmoil that he had brought upon God's man... The great plan of God, that was going to go on undeterred. In fact, God would actually work through the deceptive ways of Laban, even in the unrest in Jacob's own household, to bring about his purposes. That's what God does. That's what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. In everything that's happening all over the world, in the, in the wonderful things and in the tragedies that are happening, God is working. He's accomplishing his purposes. He's leading to his ends. And that's what we see here in our passage this morning. Jacob asks, now when, when am I going to be able to provide for my own household? And then Laban says, well, what do you want? What shall I give you? We've got to brace ourselves here because here comes Jake's, Jacob's savvy business skills. Once again, he says, 
you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. I'm going to serve you more, longer. I'll continue. But do this for me. He says, let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. Basically, give me all the ones you don't want. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wages with you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and the black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Stolen. And Laban said, good. Let it be as you said. Let me break this down to you for you. It, it's basically this. Jacob knew that Laban was a shrewd man. Oh, he knew that only too well. He knew that Laban wasn't going to give him anything for nothing, even if it was for the good of his own daughters or his own grandchildren. So Jacob agrees to continue to shepherd the flock. He said he'd go up through the flock and he'd pick out all the, all the, the speckled, the, the, the kind of the blemish-looking ones, and he'll take those for himself. Those would be all the payment he would ask for. Now, you've got to understand that this was a pretty incredible deal for his father-in-law. Because typically hired shepherds, they would earn about 10 to 20% of the flock and they'd also earn about a, a certain percentage of the wool or the milk that they produced. And since striped and spotted sheep and goats were a rarity, well, this percentage that Jacob is asking for here, it, was, it would have been far less than that 10 to 20%. Laban would have looked at this and said, this is, this is a great deal. Basically, it was an offer Jacob knew that Laban couldn't refuse. And so he doesn't refuse. But again, we see that Laban can't leave good enough alone. It seems, it seems like Laban took a certain sick kind of pleasure in making underhanded moves to get the better of people. And even if that meant bringing harm to his own family. It says this in verse 35, but that day... Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. What a creep this guy was. An absolute creep. How could you do this to your own daughters? How could you do this to your grandchildren? And I'll bet in, in kind of a, a smug, kind of supercilious way, he patted himself on the back and justifyingly said, you know, this is actually good for Jacob. I'm just teaching him the ways of the world. He'll thank me when he gets out there and starts experiencing how things really are out there. He tries to make it on his own. He's going to thank me. I'm doing him a favor. What was Jacob going to do now? Was he going to walk away with anything from this deal now that there's no speckled or spotted sheep or goats? Well, he had a plan. He had a plan. Verse 37. 
Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plain trees, and he peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put, he put his own droves apart, and he did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. And there you have it, my friends. This is how zebras came to be. <laughs> This is the way you get any type of animal that you want. You know, it makes me wonder what would happen if you took like some neon colors and put them in front. You know, could you have like a, a, a fluorescent green dog or a bright pink cat? Or what if you took certain pictures and put it in front of these animals? You know, you know I mean, could you have like a, a little bunny with like the Mona Lisa on its fur or, or, or better yet, what if, what if you got the word Cadbury written on the side of that thing? That'd be incredible. You don't have to have a college degree to realize that this passage clearly is not about the origin of a species, nor is it an instruction guide on animal husbandry. No, it's simply about how a man caught, called by God continued to receive blessing and provision despite the unscrupulous efforts of his uncle. But someone would say, well, are we semi-intelligent people really to expect and believe that if you put striped objects in front of any mating livestock, you're going to have an effect on the skin color that's produced in their offspring. I don't think so. I don't think so. And just because the Bible tells us that this is what Jacob did doesn't mean that it had any real impact or was responsible for producing what Jacob wanted. Jacob was never instructed by God to peel, peel these streaks in the sticks. I think this is evidence of him buying into a superstitious belief of his day. This was folklore. This was an old shepherd's tale. To us it sounds silly, and it really is silly. And we can point fingers and laugh all we want, but if we spend any time on social media, we'll find people holding on to all sorts of unsubstantiated beliefs, won't we? From losing weight, to protection against disease, to curing sickness, to determining the gender of your child. Even in this modern age, we still have no shortage of unfounded beliefs. In Jacob's case, this was just him again trying to use his own creativity, his own cleverness to bring about God's blessing. And he has a, a, there's a cocktail of, of snake oil and selective breeding here. And Jacob thought he could outfox the fox. And at first glance, it seems to have worked. 
Verse 43 says, Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now, I'm not sure how the female and male servants came out of that whole thing or the donkeys. But blessing clearly is occurring. If we take a look at the context here and we see that the Bible, what the Bible says in chapter 31, we realize that Jacob's success, it wasn't because of his efforts. In fact, what we see is that God actually worked in spite of Jacob's efforts. Jacob says himself in chapter 31 that God came to him in a dream and told him that the goats that were going to mate, they were going to produce these striped and speckled colors. Look at 31.10. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and molted. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. He said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and molted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. So regardless of whatever superstitious beliefs Jacob held or how he was trying to help make this happen, the Bible is clear. God was responsible for the increase that Jacob received. Do you remember Rachel's mandrakes last week? They worked so well, didn't they? Not really. Same thing's going on here. He's buying into something that's ineffective. It, it's God who worked. God who worked alone. He works in spite of us, in spite of, of our silly, misinformed ways. He's ever working out his plan and purpose. He said in Isaiah 46, 9, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Let's never forget that. God is sovereign. He is working in spite of us. And it is incredible what confidence that should inspire in us. What trust, what faith. But it's so easy for us to get caught up in the latest fad, the latest gimmick, the latest bandwagon, the latest way of getting fit or preventing illness or getting ahead or getting rich or fixing your marriage or having healthy kids or getting rid of the bumps and bruises, the aches and pains of life. But when we do that, are we endangering ourselves of having our focus shift from where it really should be to begin trusting in all of these other little remedies or solutions out there? What if our reliance on God and our trust in his control and his influence over all things, that's getting put on the back burner and we've now traded that to look to other things. 
We can get so caught up in our own devices, can't we? So caught up that we fail to look to the one who says, cast all your cares on me. I care for you. And instead of seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting that he's going to give us everything that we need for, for health, for flourishing, we begin trusting our own efforts, buying into those silly fads that the world just dangles in front of us. Remember what the tempter said to Jesus in the wilderness? You must be hungry. You haven't eaten in a few days. Why not turn these stones into bread? You have needs. Do whatever it takes to get the satisfaction that your body is longing for. And do you remember what Jesus said? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus knew the true source of everything that he needed as a human man. It was right there in God the Father. He knew that life was more than just the hunger pains he was feeling inside. And that God, in God the Father, was everything that he needed. And that's where he kept his eyes focused. Is that where our eyes are focused? There's plenty of snake oil out there for us to buy. There's only one source of all that we need. There's only one genuine river of life. There's only one who can truly protect, who can alleviate our fears, who can provide for every one of our needs, who can empower us to overcome, who can defend us even when others oppose, who can give us the wisdom that we need, who can go before us and walk beside us, who will never abandon us or forsake us, and that is God. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He's saying, God holds it all. He's responsible for it all. And he keeps it all. He's the one we need to look to. Is your trust in him? Is it in him alone? Or has your attention trailed off in different directions? If it's happened, well, thank God he works in spite of us. Jacob wasn't perfect, we're not perfect. This is yet another example of his incredible grace. God blessed Jacob in spite of his ridiculous acceptance of the commonly held idea that you could influence the makeup of an embryo by changing what its parents looked at while mating. It just sounds utterly preposterous. What's even more extraordinary is how God has blessed us. Through the son he sent to rescue us, despite the fact that we still believed that he was the enemy. Romans 5.8, God shows us love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank God he works in spite of us. 
He's good. He's gracious. He's our one and only hope. Would you pray with me?